This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Based on shocking true events, the new Hulu original series, Under the Bridge, tells the story of a savage murder in a small town. Starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone, Under the Bridge is now streaming with new episodes Wednesdays only on Hulu. Sometimes there's a time and place for a long movie. Specifically, a great movie that's more than three hours long. Martin Scorsese's latest movie, Killers of the Flower Moon, clocks in at over three hours. We'll be reviewing it later this week, and in the meantime, we're recommending three great movies over three hours on this episode of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. I'm Glenn Weldon. And I'm Linda Holmes. Whether it's because you've got an afternoon off, you're settling in for a full evening, or you just aren't in the mood to flip from one entertainment to another, we've got you covered. Support for NPR and the following message come from FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Homes.com. You don't just live in your home, you live in your neighborhood as well. So when you're shopping for a home, you want to know as much about the area around it as possible. Luckily, Homes.com has got you covered. Each listing features a comprehensive neighborhood guide from local experts. Everything you'd ever want to know about a neighborhood, including the number of homes for sale, local amenities, and even things like median lot size and a noise score. Homes.com. We've done your homework. On Wildcard, the new podcast from NPR, you'll hear people like comedian Jenny Slate reflect on their lives. What is something you think about very differently today than you did 10 years ago? Dressing. Like, not salad dressing. I've always loved it and I'll never stop. (laughs) Dressing my body. That's all part of the new game show, Wildcard, only from NPR. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices that resonate. <laughs> Stories that change the way you think about your life. How, how did we get here? The Embedded podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. It's just the two of us today, Glenn and I, and Uh we have often on the show talked about movies that are too long, that feel too long, Um, so we are here to celebrate some movies that are real super long, and Glenn, you're going to go first. You're kicking us off. Yeah, my first pick is Magnolia, Paul Thomas Anderson's 1999 film about, uh, (laughs) it's hard to say, it's about a bunch of disparate folk in the San Fernando Valley, parents and kids, disappointing each other in ways big and small. We should state here, it is a divisive movie. Uh, A lot of folks find it uh, navel-gazy and nonsensical. The term hot mess gets tossed around a lot. I'm all for a hot mess if it's nice and savory like this one is. Basically, Jason Robards is a dying man. Philip Seymour Hoffman at peak Hoff, I would say, is his nurse. Julianne Moore is his wife. Listen to this cast. Tom Cruise is his estranged son, who's kind of a toxic men's rights guru. And April Grace is a reporter who confronts Cruise's character, and uh, they have a lot of tense scenes between them. And at the time, I remember Cruise soaked up a lot of the attention about those scenes because... 
he was playing a very slick guy who kind of gets confronted and collapses. And I think there's a resonance there. If you are a longtime movie watcher and you see a character that you kind of can see some Tom Cruise in getting called upon and the fact that he could pull that off. But if you go back and watch that now, your eyes do not depart from April Grace because April Grace is driving those scenes in a really big way. Uh, she's doing a fantastic yeah. job. Um, so you have more important be... things to well, put no, myself it's all important, into. Frank. I think this is something very important that you might need to think about putting yourself into. Mm. Not really. Frank, it, it's not like I'm trying to attack you here. No. I just... Okay, hey, hey, this is how you want to spend your time. Then go, go, go. But you're going to be surprised at what a waste it is. There's also a threat involving John C. Riley's cop and his determination to woo a deeply unwooable person played by uh, Malora Walters. It's probably the weakest of the threads, I think. William H. Macy is this sad sack grown-up quiz show kid. Philip Baker Hall is this quiz show host. And the young Jeremy Blackman is a current quiz show kid. This is a very ambitious film. It's got a terrific soundtrack by Amy Mann. Sure does. That was inescapable in the year 2000, if you found yourself in certain circles. Yeah. We talk a lot on this show, Linda, about the difference between good acting and the most acting, and this movie really rides that line. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got an ending that is profoundly unpredictable, yet I found completely, deeply satisfying. You know, I almost picked Shortcuts, Robert Altman's 1993 film, which is kind of a take on a bunch of Raymond Carver stories. Uh, that has some great acting in it, but it doesn't have this banana pants ending that yeah. brings all these stories together at such a weirdly oblique angle. This is one of those films that I have only seen once, but I have never forgotten a single frame of it. How about you? You know how when you Google a movie, like to figure out where it's streaming or whatever, it sometimes will pop up like a list of questions that people ask about that. <laughs> the very first question was, I love this so much. It was, what's the point of Magnolia? <laughs> now, there are some movies that if you Google them, you'll get like what happens at the end of right. Magnolia. This is not like Mulholland Drive, like where right. what people do is they debate like what's actually happening. It's not that. It's what's the point of Magnolia? And that's one of the things I really like about it is that its opacity is all around kind of why are we talking about these stories and why are we talking about them together? Yeah. I've never really reached a particularly satisfactory conclusion. But the thing that's good about it to me is it's so much fun to watch all these actors. As you said, yeah. the cast is just bonkers. And I will say rewatching it. It is so painful watching Philip Seymour Hoffman at this moment in his career. This is 1999. He also did The Talented Mr. Ripley in this same year yeah. and then the next year, Almost Famous. And this is kind of where he's really growing into that, like, super actor. And I watched it and I just, it made me grieve all over again for the literally decades of performances that yeah. I feel like were lost when he died young. Absolutely. He went to Paul Thomas Anderson and said, I want to play a guileless good person, which you would think is actor death, right? Yeah. But he does and he brings so much to a role that doesn't necessarily on the surface have a lot to it, but there is such depth. Yeah. I think it's just an opportunity to appreciate him all over again. It's a great pick. This movie doesn't feel long to me, even though it is so very long. People think that I am not an art house movie person, but this is a very artsy movie and I'm very mm -hmm. into it. But I will say my pick mm -hmm. for my three hour movie, I went with the Linda is a basic. And especially I did <laughs> want to talk about how in addition to very artsy movies that can get away with being that long. It is possible to make a pop project that can get away with being that long. And mm -hmm. so I am talking about Avengers Endgame sure. from 2019. I really found the end of this saga very satisfying. The film is just a minute or two over three hours. And when you go back and look at it, you see that it's structured in such a, an unusual way. And that's part of why it's so long. 
It is very much chaptered. It has a whole opening 20 minutes or so that's about this failed attempt to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. It has a section that's about actually solving the problem. And there's so much for this movie to do. At the end of um, the previous film, you know, you had had this catastrophe happen to the world. And there's sort of, well, you got to undo that. I mean, you got to fix the catastrophe. Mm -hmm. You got to resolve the ultimate fight between goodies and baddies. And they also had to put some kind of conclusion on a whole bunch of different stories that they had spent, you know, 10 plus years Mm -hmm. telling in a whole bunch of movies. And if you think about everything that they had to do, it does make some sense that it's three hours long. I get completely lost in all of the time travel and all Mm -hmm. of the quantum realm. I know there are people out there who understand the whole thing and could explain it to me. Please don't. It doesn't matter. Because what I love about this movie and have always loved about the MCU movies that I do like is the individual pieces are fun to watch. Mm-hmm. They made a what I think was a pretty surprising decision to center Paul Rudd in large chunks of this movie as Ant-Man, which was, given that it was an Avengers movie, maybe not the expected move. Mm-hmm. And then also you have, you know, really funny bits like the Captain America fighting himself is one of my favorite things in any MCU movie. Mm-hmm. So even though it's three hours long, I think it gets away with it because the individual pieces, you know, both the story has multiple chapters and then the individual scenes to me are very pleasurable. Right. I mean, this does feel like what it had to feel like, which is the culmination of something, not just the story set up in Infinity War, but everything that came before it, as you said. Uh, It's tough to pull off, but like that's a lot of plates to spin. Mm -hmm. And some of those plates, I think we'll agree, got a little wobbly. The Black Widow thread is a notable plate crashing. But as a communal experience, that final battle, which is famously where most Marvel movies kind of descend into muddiness and, and incoherence, had so many moments when the audience erupted into cheers. This is a movie where it's a fundamentally different experience to watch that film at home than it was to see it in the theater. The experience can't be compared, and that's what you paid for. That's the theater-going experience. You know, I've seen it a few times. I do rewatch these movies occasionally, especially since you can find them on Disney+, and especially since you can fast-forward through the parts that you do think are boring, Uh Fat Thor being one of mine. Uh 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 But I have rewatched it, and I will tell you, I tune out so much to these big movies in those battle sequences, typically that last, like, half hour 20 minutes half hour this one i tear up multiple times during that final sequence i tear up when the people who were zapped start to come back i tear Mm -hmm. up when the hammer happens i tear up and tear up and tear up and i love the whole i love the whole thing and i will say you know on the topic of bloat we and the fact that we talk so much about movies that are too long i'm less bothered by movies that are three hours long than i am by movies that should be two hours long or an hour and 45 minutes long that are two and a half hours long because i do feel like there's a thing now where anything that you go to that takes itself at all seriously is going to be at least two and a half hours long. That's where the bloat is, not necessarily the ones that come out at three hours. Yeah. I mean, what we're talking about is films that justify their length. And uh, in various ways, the films we talked about and are talking about do that. Yeah. Well, you have one more pick. And I I have to say, it helps give lie to the idea that the three-hour movie has just recently 
even in the last 20 years, become something people can pull off. What's your second pick? Well, I mean, you know, you, you said the end game pick was basic. Uh, this is in many ways an even more basic pick because my second pick is Seven Samurai, Akira mm-hmm. Kurosawa's 1954 epic. He co-wrote it. He edited it. He directed it. Most critics certainly will probably put this film in their top 10 of all time, but there's a reason for that. It's about a village that hires seven ronin to protect themselves against bandits who are going to be coming to steal their crops. But this is an example of a film that's not really about the plot. It's all about the execution. The extra running time allows a depth of characterization, the way these very radically different styles of acting, by the way, uh, kind of define these different characters. And of course, those epic sweeping battle sequences. And this film inspired so many later films from The Magnificent Seven, which is basically a remake of, to Star Wars and beyond. But that's only the premise. That's only the subject. What you notice if you keep an eye out for it, is the technique, the framing of shots, the editing. You can see it everywhere. The battle scenes in Lord of the Rings, uh, the battle scenes in Game of Thrones, I can make an argument that the endgame battle scenes all go through this film. They wouldn't have happened without this film. It's kind of tricky to watch films like this that have inspired subsequent filmmakers because sometimes you watch a really influential film and this is the postmodern condition, right, where you watch the thing that's riffing on the thing before you see the actual thing. Right. And then when you see it finally, you're like, oh, I, I see how directors have picked up on this and innovated in some way, made it new. So seeing this OG version is like, oh, I, I see where they got that from. And that's the extent of it. But here, there is so much. The length of this film isn't superfluous or indulgent because – This film takes place over the course of a year, and we track this village over the course of a year because it is a farming village. And watching them plant and tend and sow these crops that they care so deeply about, we see how much work it is, we see how important it is, and then what Kurosawa was dedicated to doing was exploring how close the samurai and the bandits are and how violence begets violence. And he was really admitting some nuance into this giant picture and sometimes that arrives in a very outsized way. I mean, the performance of Toshiro Mifune, for example, might seem to modernize, very outsized, very theatrical, but it's part of the mix that works. And seeing that, you are reminded that directing is this weird mix. It's artistic vision meets these punishingly mundane logistics. Mm-hmm. I'll just getting everybody on screen and getting everybody to kind of hit their marks. And this is one of those classic films that I think sits on the cinematic equivalent of like your bedside table forever. You you always mean to get to it, but you're yeah. worried that it's going to feel like homework. It's not. This yeah. film is a revelation. As much as we talk about movies that are too long, and we have absolutely done that, it's all relative to how much you justify it. It's all relative to how much story you have and how much character development you have, but also it's relative to how much pleasure in the individual moments of and the scenes of those films that makes it very easy for me to digest that at three hours. Sure. Well, we want to know, what are your favorite movies that are over three hours? Find us at facebook.com slash PCHH. And that brings us to the end of our show. Glenn Weldon, thank you so much for doing this with me. As always. This episode is produced by Mike Katzif and Thomas Liu and edited by Jessica Reed. And Hello Come In provides our theme music. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Linda Holmes, and we'll see you all tomorrow. Okay, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase and an opportunity. The opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper. How to actually take that dream trip. 
That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from NYU Stern. What makes a good leader great? It's your own ambition coupled with the support you need to take that next great leap. With NYU Stern's Executive MBA program in Washington, D.C., that's what you get. A robust curriculum balanced with convenience. Classes held one Friday, Saturday, Sunday a month in downtown D.C. Be open to excellence. Search NYU Stern EMBA in D.C. for more information.